think we're live now. So uh, we're glad that you've joined us. We have a special guest here today. This is Ray Ortland, And actually, uh, I'm meeting Ray for the first time. So I'm super excited about this and excited for everyone else to get to meet you. And of course, Jeff Dodge, uh, one of the pastors I get to serve with at Veritas. So um, we've already, uh, yeah, I feel like I wish we could recreate the last 15 minutes of kind of pre-conversation <laughs> and we will maybe get to some of that here again. But um, Ray, I, I would love for you just to introduce yourself, give, okay. give just a quick bio, what you're up to sure. right now. Um, I am married to Jani, J-A-N-I. And we just completed 48 years of uh, marriage. Um, I really enjoy my wife. I like her. <laughs> we, That's so good. We, we have fun together. <laughs> and uh, we've gotten to the place in God's mercy where we, I know she's for me and she knows I'm for her. So that when we disagree, there's no crisis embedded in that. It doesn't feel crisis-y. Uh, it's just, you know, so I'm, I'm deeply grateful to God for the privilege of being married to this amazing woman that likes me and I really like her. Um, I just finished um, my ministry recently at uh, Emmanuel Church in Nashville, Tennessee. I handed, I was lead pastor, handed that off to a magnificent uh, younger pastor, TJ Timms, and they're finally free of me, rid of me. Now they can get going. <laughs> <laughs> and they're just doing really well. Um, they have graciously called me to be pastor to pastors, both the pastors there on staff and other pastors as well. And uh, right now we're all um, sort of, we're, we're watching the slow motion and sometimes not slow motion demolition of all our plans and expectations for 2020, aren't we? Oh, wow. Yeah. So here we are, you know, we wouldn't have dreamed that we would be doing this, but um, mm -hmm. God's plan is better than ours. So we're, we, you know, we're trusting him. And I have to believe this is of such magnitude, guys, I'm sure you'd agree with me that at, at the deepest level, there are lots of levels of causation, but at the deep end meaning, but at, at the deepest level, this whole terrible thing is, is of God. Mm -hmm. This is God, this is God calling to us, God speaking to us. Uh, God saying, the time has come to redesign your whole reality. Mm. So let's talk that through. Let's think that through. I think that's what this whole moment is about. Ray, what do you think most needs to be redesigned in most of our lives? Well, I'm sure I don't see that with enough clarity, but Francis Schaeffer used to, he helped me so much. He said, we, we must do the Lord's work in the Lord's way. He had a sermon, you can find it online, the Lord's work in the Lord's way, outside the Bible. That sermon is the most important thing I've ever read. And it's in his book, No Little People, published by Crossway, but it's also uh, readable uh, online. And when he, what, what he meant by that is we do the Lord's work in the Lord's way. That is, 
it's not enough just to believe the right things and try really hard. We do the Lord's work in the Lord's way when we're actually drawing upon him for wisdom and strength moment by moment. Now, the frantic, crazy busy pace at which we've been living life is guaranteed to get us not doing the Lord's work in the Lord's way. But our own cleverness, our own adrenaline, our own pace, our own priorities. But thinking we're doing this all for Jesus. So I think the Lord is wrecking that model of life and ministry, that, that way of doing church, that way of being a Christian. And I think he is saying to us now what he said in Matthew 11, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Wow. Mm. Yeah, I, I know, Mark, you've got some great questions, and I want you to keep probing. I guess for anybody that's uh, watching now, leaning in, um, I just want to say uh, what Ray is saying. If this is your first introduction, and it's likely not, but if it is your first introduction to Ray Ortland, it's not just that he says this stuff. That's actually the way that he's living his life. Um, his starting with his love for his wife, it is palpable. I mean, to be around Ray and Janie is to see this just um, almost newlywed infatuation with each other. And it's just so real and sincere and, and beautiful. And uh, the unhurried life, uh, when Teresa and I were privileged to be able to go and spend a couple of days down there with the Ortlands, um, it was the most natural thing in the world to over breakfast, just all of a sudden, hey, why don't we just open our Bibles? And why don't we just read together? You know, and then that would go into this natural time of prayer. You know, why don't we take a walk? And then, we, I mean, just this rhythm of the unhurried life where God is just kind of welcomed into every moment, every meal, every walk. And uh, anyway, I, Ray, I just want you to know, you, thank you for not just saying that stuff but for blazing a trail of modeling that for a lot of us who are caught up in that hurried world and think that somehow that's the right way to live. And that's what's calling us as leaders. And, and for somebody with your platform to be able to kind of throw the, the, the brakes on and say, actually, let me invite you to a, a different ordering of life. Um, yeah. I think one of the, one of the ways that I, I look at all the young pastors, my peers, and I see, I was saying earlier, these two guys on the screen, I think in our SALT network, people looked at Jeff Dodge in the same way that I hear people in other networks looking to you, Ray, as kind of a shepherding pastor, that voice um, encouraging people, keeping hope alive in the next generation of pastors. And I was talking to uh, Drew up at Salt City Church in Minneapolis. I'm like, hey, I'll be talking to Ray tomorrow. And he's just like, oh, ask him this, like, Pretty much all the questions come from my conversation with Drew, but he's like, what is, what is Ray's secret sauce? I mean, the, that, that humility, that gracious tone. And I guess I, I wondered if you'd share the, the mantra of your church. And I, I wonder, is that your secret sauce? Like what, where's that come from? Yeah. Well, the Emmanuel mantra, um, 
we have fun with it. And sometimes we, the whole church, we all say it out loud together at some point, but uh, it's the Emmanuel mantra is, is simple. It's three points. One, I'm a complete idiot. Two, my future is incredibly bright. Three, anyone can get in on this. Um, and we like that because um, we're in the Bible Belt and people expect Christians to pose uh, as if they were sort of superior, as if they were above it all. And we are so not superior. We are not above it all. We are deeply flawed. And um, we all have regrets. We all come to church every Sunday needing to be reoxygenated. And to admit that with some self-deprecating humor is, um, is freeing mm. because it's honest. And then the next step is our future is incredibly bright uh, because of what Jesus brings to the table. Uh, we don't come to church to polish our wonderfulness. We don't come to church to rehearse our doctrinal perfection. We come to church bringing nothing but need to the one who is enough for whatever that need is, week by week. So we're, we're living proof <laughs> that Jesus can love anybody. <laughs> can, you, and, yeah. can you help me understand? I mean, you, you know, we, we hear a lot about we need to be gospel-centered, laser-focused on the gospel. We hear, you know, the, we, we use this term a lot, preaching the gospel to ourselves every day. I'm curious, what does the gospel, what does the good news sound like when you rehearse it in, in your own heart and mind, what does is, what is the gospel sound like when Ray preaches it to Ray? Yeah. That's a very searching question. Um, what helps me, the, the theme in the gospel that helps me personally the most is how Jesus feels about me right now. And, oh, here's a book advertisement. Um, <laughs> my son, uh, this book was published yesterday. It's brand new, written by my son, Dane. The title is Gentle and Lowly, The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers. Um, Spurgeon pointed out, uh, the British preacher, uh, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, pointed something out. In Matthew 11, when Jesus said, I am gentle and lowly in heart, that's the one time in the New Testament when he tells us about his heart. Now, we know a lot about his life, his teachings, his miracles, his death, his resurrection, his second coming. The one time we get a glimpse into his heart, his core being, his, the, his, the deepest substratum of his personality, who he always is and cannot not be, who he just is. <clears throat> he tells us, he opens up his chest, as, it's, as it were, and says, here's who I am 
way down deep, gentle and lowly, hmm. not demanding and pushy. Hmm. Guys, we, and, and almost nobody believes that, we have parachuted into a universe where ultimate reality is gentleness and lowliness. <laughs> what? And so he is, I believe that the risen Lord above right now is not looking at me rolling his eyes, saying, really? I mean, <laughs> you're still like this? And, you know, the 19th time in, in any given day when I come to him with, I need more help, I need more guidance, I need more hope, more encouragement, more correction, more whatever. See, when, when I see a high-maintenance person coming toward me, the truth is, I'm looking out my peripheral vision for an escape route. <laughs> Jesus loves high maintenance sinners. And when he sees us coming to him for the bazillionth time, he actually lights up. He's motivated. John 1.16, for from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. Clear implication upon grace, upon grace, upon grace. Um, there is a psychological, emotional, relational fullness in him that is undepletable. Mm. He's not just a bigger version of us. He's not like us. Hmm. There is an immeasurable patience and Readiness, openness, non-touchy gentleness in him toward us that it, it actually takes some adjusting to believe. Mm. But what that book does is he, Dane just keeps showing it to us from the Bible in multiple, multiple passages, so that eventually we sort of collapse in this happy defeat and say, okay, Lord, you win, I believe. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's interesting that you bring up that theme because this morning on my walk, I was letting Tim Keller preach to me again about Palm Sunday, and it was, it was just great. And he was re reminding all of us listening in, you know, that um, when Jesus chose to, to ride into Jerusalem on the donkey, it had to be the most anticlimactic moment for his disciples because they were all like, finally, he's ready to go into the capital. And finally, he's speaking plainly about his kingship and it's time for Messiah to arise. And instead of picking the noble steed, you know, he gets on this little donkey, he goes, man, any conquering king would have been better off walking into the city rather than like crippling himself on the back of this little donkey, you know, but he was just making that statement that you're just referring to right there. This, this king is going to come gentle and lowly, right, in that humility, even on his grand entrance. And, and again, how antithetical to many in, in leadership now where we want to 
stick out our chest and yeah. make the grand entrance. And it's, it's not the Jesus way. We, yeah. Ray, I think that you, uh, when, when I look at a lot of my peers and kind of the Gen X leaders now, um, that we're coming out of a lot of the church planners or kind of disenfranchised youth pastors coming out of mega churches. And we listened to some kind of the celebrity preachers that were our peers. And, you know, it was a lot of kind of middle fingers in the air toward their church and all the things they wouldn't be. And that tone and kind of some swearing and edgy leadership and a, a little bit of the, um, yeah, kind of rewarding um, bullies <laughs> in a sense. And I mean, honestly, I think I was kind of came of age in that, you know, as we listen to their podcasts and listen to their preaching. And I think you're, and then, and then we, we kind of see where that goes. And then we look at someone like you and we're like, ah, I, I think you might be right on this. And I guess my question to you is, um, what, how does a, how does a young pastor lead in this moment through, how do we lead like Jesus in the midst of this pandemic? Mm. And, and I know there's, there's multiple layers to this. I, I guess I'm thinking um, just your pastoral instinct and, and what, how would Jesus lead through? I mean, there's individual shepherding conversations, certainly with somebody who lost their job, somebody who's going through loss. Also, there's sort of the, uh, the organizational level of the budgets and reality of staff and the economic uncertainty. I also think of our desire to proclaim repentance and faith publicly through online, you know, my neighbors are clicking on for the first time to Veritas Church and other places, and we're wanting to be faithful with the prophetic voice to call people to this. I guess that's a big question just to ask, how do we lead like Jesus through this? What does that look like um, to you? You know, your question prompts me to remember that in John's Gospel, chapter 3, verse 30, John the Baptist says of Jesus, he must increase, I must decrease. And I believe it was uh, D.A. Carson in his commentary points out something I'd never noticed, but it's just obvious. It's right there. John the Baptist is a very visible presence in John's gospel up to that point. And then when John the Baptist says, he must increase, I must decrease, John disappears from the narrative of that gospel. Poof, he's gone. He has served his purpose. He's done exactly what the Lord wanted him to do. And he's, he's done. Hmm. That is not the way we think. We think, I, sometimes I think, yeah, Jesus must increase, but I can increase too. You know, hey, I'll be big about this. You know, I mean, I'll, I'll share my platform with Jesus. I, I owe him everything, you know. So but there are three possibilities. He must decrease and I must increase. Well, that's pretty blatant. We're not going to say that. He, he must increase and I'll increase too. I think that's where really, without even thinking about it, that's where we go. But actual ministry is he must increase, I must decrease. That's 
a paradigm shift. What does, what does it look like for Jesus to get more and more attention and for me to be perfectly contented and actually happy with being overlooked and not worshiped? I wonder if, especially in our age of social media and all these wonderful outlets for communication that we have, self-exaltation is a perennial temptation, but now we have media to gratify that, that itch like mm. never before. And mm. let's, can we just all admit how vulnerable we are to that and how self-exalting we can be without mm. even realizing, we don't even see the problem and how, how readily we go to he must increase and I must increase too. Um, so I, I think it's very important to recognize that is not one model of ministry. That is evil. Mm. Wow. That is using Jesus for mm. our own self-exaltation and self-magnification. Wow. Um, so wow. Ray, it that, even strikes me. Sorry, it just even strikes me that your references, you keep leaning into the Gospel of John. And as you were teaching us from the Gospel of John, it occurs to me like that is the book that I was given when I first gave my life to Christ as a university student, like Christianity 101. Here, Jeff, read the Gospel of John. You know, this is like the most low hanging fruit, the, the, you know, the cookies on the most bottom shelf. And it, it's, I think of, you know, in Revelation 2, in the Ephesian church, what they need to do is go back. They've, they've lost their first love. You know, they just need to go back. It's the one time that, that go back and, and love me the way you did right at the beginning. I'm just saying so many of the principles that you're giving to leaders who are supposed to be way out front and, and kind of on, on the meat of the word. Many of us, I think, need to go back and just study like the gospel of John as if we were the most brand new, unacquainted believers and, and reacquaint ourselves with those beautiful gospel foundational truths. Amazing. Can, Ray, can you talk about the ministry of encouragement? We were talking before we went live about that, your, what your New Testament professor shared, because I think it takes humility to encourage others, to think about the empathy to see the other and their need and speak life into them? Yes, yes. I was, I was just remembering that Murray Harris, the um, uh, New Testament scholar from New Zealand, he, he and I were, I had the privilege of being his colleague at Trinity when I taught there. He simply pointed out one time that the minute in the New Testament, the ministry of encouragement is one of the most important ministries in the Christian church. And wow. I had never just put it so plainly in words like that before, but immediately I knew he was right. And my dad embodied this. My dad, I think it was, uh, said to me once, Ray, I've never met anybody who was too encouraged. Um, one of the, when, when we pastors and leaders are not walking in the power of the Holy Spirit, but are doing this on our own for our own big dealness, one of the things that we tend to do is just beat people up to get mm. them to behave. And church becomes 
an exercise in self-improvement and posing and outward polishing and can Ray, you said you said you made this statement. You said I have a profound distaste for pastors who want to correct all the time. Yeah. Or challenge all the time. Yeah. Well, can you unpack that? What well sure. I mean, you mean by that? Here's the amazing thing, guys. People literally get in their cars on Sunday mornings and drive down to church to receive our ministries. <laughs> they are literally asking us to serve them, help them. They want to live for the Lord. They want to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. They want to know the Bible. They want their lives to count for eternity. They're, they are literally... We don't have to go drag them in. We don't have to put a gun to their head and say, you get into church. They're coming to us for crying out loud. And this is a soft pitch, guys. And can we just notice how amazing that is and how trusted we are? People are trusting us so remarkably. Um, they're making themselves vulnerable to us. They're giving us permission to speak into their lives. I feel so honored by that. I feel so trusted mm. and so loved. I really mm. want to take care of those people. I mean, they don't, they're not saying, please beat me up because that'll really do me some good. What, guys, when is the last time? <laughs> when is the last time you got a real tongue lashing and, you know, and it, when it came to an end, you thought, boy, that really felt good. That really helped me. I can't wait for that to happen again. <laughs> Week after week after week. Yeah. <laughs> what, what, do you, what do you mean by your statement, a ministry of challenge is a ministry of the law? Well, challenge is inviting people to measure up. It's calling people to ante up. And, you know, at one level, there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, I am a slacker. Um, but that simply isn't the Christian gospel. Did Jesus have to die on the cross, rise again, and send down the Holy Spirit so that we today could tell people, do better, try harder? <laughs> if our ministry is do better, try harder, Jesus didn't have to come at all. So our ministry is not one of challenge. Our ministry is one of news about what Jesus has already done for us in our place. And of, it's, a, it's about, we have basically two themes, guys, basically. One, the finished work of Christ on the cross. Two, the endless power of the Holy Spirit. Mm. Mm. And we just want to keep, so just gently sort of taking people by the hand respectfully in socially acceptable ways, gently, respectfully taking people by the hand and pointing them toward Jesus in his death on the cross for all their failures every single time they have not measured up to the challenge. And point to the Lord, the risen Lord above and his outpouring of the Holy Spirit for their weakness, impasse, defeat, and need, moment by moment. Mm. Mm. Now, that's basically our ministry right there, guys. Mm. The cross, the throne. Man, Mark, it, uh, 
I don't know if it'd be appropriate now, but earlier we were on, Mark has this uh, group, he calls them his Caleb group. And obviously Mark, you could talk more about your group, but he, he has this group of older men, godly older men that he meets with every single week just to receive from, from them. And uh, he, in, he invited me into their, their Zoom time today. And Mark, you were reading from uh, The Great Divorce. And that, that story that you just gave is exactly what, what Ray was just talking about, that imploring of just, oh, no, it's not. Anyway, you, Can we I don't know. <laughs> listen to our, do you want to hear this, Ray? You want to? Sure. I would. I would love to read this to you because I'm. Please. I'm uh, using this time to try to try to get back into some old friends, and I read this, you know, a long time ago, probably in college, and I, I hadn't. And and it's like I've never read it before. It's the conversation. So so for those of you that have never read this, uh, so Lewis, he's basically taking uh, this this character's going on a bus tour of heaven. Uh, with people from hell and these people from hell are like ghosts there's no substance to them but the people in heaven are just like this real solid people you know and so he's at this point where the first person that that they meet he's watching this conversation between the ghost who's this character from hell and this solid person who's from heaven and and this solid person that's in heaven has committed murder and this guy they knew each other from a previous life and so he says this The ghost said, look at me now, said the ghost, slapping its chest, but the slap made no noise. I gone straight all my life. I don't say I was a religious man and I don't say I had no faults, far from it, but I done my best all my life, see? I done my best by everyone. That's the sort of chap I was. I never asked for anything that wasn't mine by my rights. If I wanted a drink, I paid for it. And I, if I took my wages, I'd done my job. See, that's the sort I was and I don't care who knows it. Oh, it would be much better not to go on about that now. Hmm. Who's going on? I'm not arguing. I'm just telling you the sort of chap I was. See, I'm asking for nothing but my rights. You may think you can put me down because you're dressed up like that, which you weren't when you worked under me. And I'm only a poor man, but I got to have my rights, same as you, see? Oh, no, it's not so bad as that. I haven't got my rights, or I should not be here. You will not get yours either. You'll get something far better. Hmm. Never fear. Well, that's just what I say. I haven't got my rights. I always done my best and I never done nothing wrong. And I don't see is why I should be put below a bloody murderer like you. Hmm. Well, who knows whether you will be. Only be happy and come with me. What do you keep on arguing for? I'm only telling you the sort of chap I am. I only want my rights. I'm not asking for anybody's bleeding charity. Well, then do. At once, ask for the bleeding charity. Everything is here for the asking, and nothing can be bought. Well, that may be very well for you, I dare say, if they choose to let in a bloody murder all because he makes a poor mouth at the last moment. That's their lookout. But I don't see myself going in the same boat with you, see? Why should I? I don't want charity. I'm a decent man. And if I had my rights, I'd have been here long ago. And you can tell them I said so. Wow. This conversation between it, it just seems like 
the sin that every person in hell has in common is this self-righteousness. And, you know, I love that when he's like, I'm not asking for anybody's bleeding charity. And he says, then do at once ask for the bleeding charity. Like (laughs) everybody in heaven is living off of charity. It is so hard to accept. Um, It is so hard to accept that our rightness, whether it's political rightness, moral rightness, uh, religious rightness, doctrinal rightness, what everything we believe sets us apart as better and different. It's so hard to believe and accept that that rightness has lost all its buying power when we mm. come into the presence of Christ. Ooh, wow. And, and it's so hard to accept that our, our rightness is sort of like monopoly money. <laughs> and it doesn't matter how much you have. <laughs> we're, we're, once the game is over it doesn't yeah. matter <laughs> we're, we're in a different economy when we come to to christ and he only deals with real money and he's, he's got scads of it and Loads this ghost it. this ghost character couldn't believe that his money wasn't worth anything in heaven yeah right yeah i have Lots of monopoly money. It has to matter. It, <laughs> yeah. it's, I got more than you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, but but I, uh, the stunning part about that, man, I, I've ended up grabbing my own version of it. You know, after hearing that quote, I'm like, man, I got to go drink some more of that incredible encounter. But um, what is often humbling to me is how much I end up looking like the ghost. Right. I mean, taking on the attitude of that ghost and, um, you know, talking about Christian leadership, the evangelical world of, of leadership right now. It, I hate that way too often leaders that are getting the applause of people resemble the self-righteous man <laughs> more than the hungry, begging, eager for charity, boasting in the charity real heaven bound man in in the great divorce but one of the ways that we can discern what's going on the one or the other is receiving the merit of christ with the empty hands of faith that that vertical gift from above spreads out horizontally in a culture of shalom gentleness patience, um, a a sort of cheerful kindness and so forth toward others. Whereas the assertive, pushy, demanding, angry um, dynamic of self-righteousness creates needless conflict with others horizontally. It breaks fellowship. It, It it uh, structures aloofness and superiority and distance between people. Um, we, we see this on social media. We see it even between churches, between denominations. What if, see, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.18, God has given us 
the ministry of reconciliation. The doctrine of God's grace creates a culture of human grace. Gospel doctrine creates gospel culture. And uh, if it doesn't say God gives us moments of reconciliation now and then when it feels, when we, it feels good to us and, and it serves our purposes. No, God has given us the ministry of reconciliation. It's all we do. It's how we roll. When we have really, the grace of God has really gone down deep inside us. It changes our perception, not just of ourselves, but of other people. And we, our hearts melt. We start coming together. And we become a force for reconciliation, for building bridges, for owning up, for um, making new friendships, regaining ex-friends. I think one of the scandals uh, among us men is all the thousands of ex-friends in the Christian community. Mm. And nobody seems bothered by that. Mm. But what if God has given us the ministry of reconciliation? What if his grace toward us? Maybe, what if the whole point is, or the primary outcome is, to spread uh, grace to one another? Mm. What if God doesn't love me more than he loves you? What if he loves us all with the same grace, mercy, love, and patience, and gentleness? What if we have to give up our anger? <laughs> How do you... Okay, so... so <laughs> let me try to push back. The, the, just Hymenaeus, Alexander, these different characters in the New Testament that were just thorns and... Paul's, you, you know, you. How do you maintain your drawn a line? And I think I think one of the objections to what you're saying is going to be there are times where Paul is very strong, confrontational. How do you know when this is a yeah, yeah. Um, there are moments of legitimate rebuke, correction, uh, formal discipline, and so forth. But it's the difference between a banner headline and the story at the bottom of page three. Hmm. They're both in the newspaper, but what, what is lifted up, what is unmistakably publicly obvious? And when is rebuke correction warranted? In my opinion, uh, that rebuke is warranted when gospel doctrine is undermined or gospel culture is deconstructed. Mm. In other words, in this sacred circle of the Christian church, seriously jacked up sinners can enter in without fear. The, 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 deal, the deal breaker is any sinner inside that circle jeopardizing the experience of grace for other sinners. 
when anyone does that at the level of doctrine or at the level of culture and relationships and feel and vibe, that's when the duly authorized leaders in that moment, pastors, elders, step in, they intervene, and they say, just very clearly, they say, we don't do that around here. Whether it's um, teaching that would dishonor the Lord and jeopardize other sinners, or whether it's behavior that would dishonor the Lord and jeopardize other sinners. Mm -hmm. But if, as, as long as we're coming in with the empty hands of faith and making space and creating safety for other people, we can bring any mess in. Ray, I, you know, the, the very first morning, the very first passage you took me to was at the end of 2 Timothy 4, where it, it says, Alexander the coppersmith, this is, you know, Paul giving kind of personal testimony. Alexander the coppersmith, did great harm to me, the Lord will repay him according to his works. But watch out for him yourself because he strongly opposed our words. I remember you just saying, no, it's okay to identify people who are, what you're talking about, they're uh, destructive to the Christian gospel, the movement, the, the church. And so he's saying, hey, I'm not going to take revenge. The Lord do it, but, but watch out for him because that, that is a character that's, that's hindering grace and, and truth. But then that next line, at my first defense, no one stood by me, but everyone deserted me. May it not be counted against them. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me so that I might fully preach the word and all the Gentiles might hear of it. I just loved how you just walked through that to say, and then there's that next concentric circle around guys like Alexander that just kind of get caught up in it. They that don't, don't treat them the same way that you yeah. are identifying Alexander. There, there's like layers or tears, you know, and call them out, name them, and not out of a revenge, let the Lord deal. But it's okay. Identify them. Be careful of them. They're going to bring destruction. But all those other guys, you know what? They're just foolish like we are. They got caught up in it. Ah. Uh, the Lord stood by me and that's all that matters. You know, just losing that. I, I don't know. Sorry to, I, I just preached your word back to you. That it's a little weird. <laughs> oh gosh. I love that. Passage so much. <laughs> that has helped me so many times. Yeah. I, I'm really grateful for those three categories. A very, um, a serious opponent, weak friends, a very strong friend. Mm. Wow. <laughs> Wow. Yes. Yes. Ray, I would love to, um, I would love to hear, we, we kind of got off on this riff. Jeff was talking about my Caleb group. I meet with every Wednesday. I just always, from the time I was a kid, you know, my grandpa would take me to, he's small town, Iowa farmer, you know, take me down to the house of knowledge, you know, and all these old guys sitting around shooting the breeze, you know, and I hated it when I was little, but the older I get, the more I just long for just sitting around and so just shooting the breeze with some old guys, you know, you see the guys in high B or the grocery or the, the <laughs> diner or whatever having coffee. So that's kind of what I do. And I, I just imagine myself, it's like me talking to myself in 30 years, you know, with these 70 year old guys. And, and I guess my, my question to you is it's uh, you don't know me as well. So I'll ask it this way. What would 70 year old Ray say to 43 year old Ray? I'm 43, but just imagine I'm you and 
you just as a young pastor, young family, um, trying to be faithful with yeah. being a husband, father, pastor. Wow. Well, guys, I have a lot of regrets. Um, I wish I could have said uh, several things. One, stop caring about secondary things so much. Keep the first thing first, Christ himself. And secondary issues um, don't deserve emotional hyper-commitment and attention. Um, it has taken me years to get past misplaced fascination and misplaced emotional commitment. So then secondly, and actually, um, I, I have less regret about this, uh, but enjoy your present reality. Enjoy your wife. Enjoy your family. Enjoy your ministry. Um, your present reality is not a death sentence. It's a gift. Uh, and, and this present moment with your wife, your family, your ministry, you're not going to get it back. Mm. And the best, you know, the Westminster Shorter Catechism asks, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Apparently, the Bible says the greatest commandment is to love God. Apparently, if, you know, the Presbyterians understood, when we love God, what, pardon me, when we enjoy God, he feels loved. Mm. Enjoyment is the key to love. Sincere, um, non-mocking, sincere, wholehearted enjoyment of the other is a profound form of love. So uh, let's, rather than tolerate our families and, and sort of put up with the church we serve, and look, uh, it's all gift. It's, we're immersed in grace all the time. Why not enjoy it? Mm. Mm. And not be frustrated that the church isn't five years further down the road. Because apparently where it is right now is it must be okay with the Lord. <laughs> yeah. Hey, so let me invite, let me invite your wife. Uh, is it Jenny? Yeah. You said Jenny. Uh, what advice would she give to all the young moms out there that are, we got moms and dads. I'm at home. I've got, you know, trying to shut the door, keeping the noise of we've got six kids from age 17 down to seven. And, you know, my wife asked me if I would help homeschool one of the boys. And I was like, I can't do that. I, I can't take that hour to two hours out of my day to do that because my job's important. You know, as the words are coming out of my mouth, I'm like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So she's down there in the battle, you know, yeah. and I'm up here having fun conversations. Uh, <laughs> oh, my word. What, what, I mean, I'm just thinking about the dads and moms at home with family and you're just like, enjoy them, enjoy them. And one of my men's groups this morning, my, one of the dads was like, man, we tried playing Uno last night and 15 minutes felt like an eternity. And it was like getting my teeth pulled out slowly one by one, you know? If you could just uh, 
speak into that just advice yeah. to uh well we're parents. all discovering how selfish we are <laughs> i mean it's really it's serious and uh, yeah this is a sort of helpfully embarrassing uh here's here's a recommendation we're we're going through this very unusual very intense revealing experience and for so many of us, it's really family focused. Why not take a verse of scripture, a promise in the Bible, and um, make it your, whichever one resonates with your hearts in your family, and make it the theme of your family. Make that verse in the Bible the theme uh, for your family through this whole experience. And wallpaper your reality with that encouraging, uplifting, strengthening promise in the Bible. Memorize it together, recite it together, write it down on, on you know, note cards, put, tape it to the fridge, um, put it on the, the, the desktop of your computer, um, uh, and grab onto something larger than yourselves. reach out beyond the thoughts of your own mind to what God says and how God thinks. Look beyond your own limitations and disappointments to what God can do and, and just change the subject to, um, from ourselves and our depletion and our anxieties and our irritations and our touchiness and all of that stuff to, to, to something that's beautiful and powerful and mm. transcendent. Our kids are watching us. And if they're noticing in us um, a smallness at times and a pettiness at times that we didn't even know was there, well, okay. But let's also display a hope in God that they will never forget mm. as long as they live. Mm. What we need to be, the gift we most need to give our kids and our families right now is a sense of God in this moment that 30, 40, 50 years from now, they're going to need. Mm -hmm. Wow. Well, and if we can give them that gift, along with, you know, the honest and embarrassing, you know, uh, ways we let them down. But if we can give them this gift of a sense of God, according to scripture, and a sense of hope that no pandemic can destroy, something that this world never gave to us, something that this world cannot take from us, they will remember that for the rest of their days. Mm. And they're going to need it when they're facing things we can't even imagine. I wonder if that gift right now. I wonder if you could even speak really specifically to this upcoming weekend. I mean, this is the Christian holiday that even non-Christians come out of the woodwork to celebrate along with the Christians, right? I mean, so for all those believers, single, married, empty nesters, young kids, whatever, every Christ follower out there right now is going into a, a resurrection weekend that Good Friday service is now Easter morning, resurrection morning. Nope. How, 
can, can you just speak to kind of just the church at large? How do we enter into celebrating what would normally be such a community event uh, in social isolation? What do you think? Well, we, we really, we're going to feel that isolation very intensely on Sunday morning and mm-hmm. on Good Friday evening. That's a real loss. But simultaneously, I mean, death and resurrection is the key to reality. It's not a sidebar. We Christians believe that death and resurrection are actually how how we human beings break out of impasse, defeat, disillusionment into hope and transcendency and a joy that is really solid. So, for example, in uh, Philippians chapter 3, Paul says, I want to know him and the power of his resurrection and share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. At one level, this pandemic is just destroying how we've understood the sort of rhythms and patterns and delivery systems of gospel ministry. At the same time, it is freeing us to see with new clarity and vividness, undeniable vividness, and embrace very deeply death and resurrection in Christ as the key to life. And if we will understand that and deeply accept that and let that really grip us way down deep, we will thereby become better prepared for whatever's next. Guys, mm. I, I, I am so profound. I'm the biggest whiner in all the world, but I can't even complain because I think what's happening here is that God is preparing us for a wave of mega blessing in the near future. Wow. Uh, nominal Bible Belt Christianity is, it has nothing to say to us anymore. Now everybody can see that. Mm. But real, original, Jesus given, apostolic, biblical, gospel driven, Holy Spirit anointed Christianity, this is a perfect time. Mm. It, for, for, for sinners and sufferers. Mm. So we're being deconstructed yeah. and reconstructed for the future. Ray, yes. as mm. we're thinking about resurrection and hope, what's heaven going to be like? What are we looking forward to? I mean, what is the, when you think about heaven, what should people be excited about? What is the, where, what is this place we're dreaming about? Well, from my reading of scripture, I, I, here's, here's what I think is going to happen to me the instant I walk into heaven and into the Lord's presence. It's kind of hard to talk about. But he's going to be standing there, and I'm going to be standing there. And I think he might say to me, Ray, would you like a hug? Mm. And I'll say, yeah. And so I'll run to him and throw myself into his arms. And um, 
<laughs> I might knock him over, you know, and, and, and he'll laugh and, you know, we'll both stand up and just laugh. He'll love it. And um, so he'll just scoop me up in his arms and he'll say, um, take your time. I'm in no hurry. So I might stay there for a year. And um, I'm going to feel this healing, like going right down and flowing down into the roots of my being. I will finally discover, I'll start to feel like, oh, so this is what it feels like to be human. This is what it feels like to be alive. This is what it feels like to be happy. This is what it feels like to be complete. And um, so maybe a year later, I'll say, thank you. And he'll say, you're welcome. And he'll, maybe he'll say, so you ready? I'll say, yeah. And he'll say, well, here we go. Ray, we have spent a lot of time in, uh, I mean, it, I picture this, uh, you know, you go to the grocery store, every grocery store has a candy aisle. There's a lot of good food. We've been eating a lot of good food. We've been enjoying the, the produce, the meat section, um, but the candy aisle is important too. And I want to, before we close, I just want to go into the candy aisle of questions. Sure. <laughs> There's been so much gold and so much good. And, and uh, I, I just want to ask some quick hitting questions on sure. uh, to, to get us into the candy aisle. I, I see that you, uh, you have a dog, you love your dog. We've had a dog for about a year and a half now. Can you remind me why? We got a dog. <laughs> Before you answer that, Ray, I just, I just, maybe as somebody who's met both your dogs, um, <laughs> so one of you two has done a little better job training their dog. Than, <laughs> yeah, I'll just leave it up to the listener to decide. Hey, I, I tell myself mine is still in the puppy stage. Yeah. Well, <laughs> we actually had to, to, to send our doggy off to doggy boot camp and she was there for about six or eight weeks. She went there demon possessed. She came back a Christian convert. So <laughs> that's what it took. <laughs> okay. Well, what do you love about your dog? Why do people like dogs? This is a, we have felt this instant connection all of a sudden with yeah. the pet loving world, which is, is awesome. We do love our dog, but. Isn't that fascinating? Yeah, I'm trying to figure this out. Why do we, dogs are, I think it's incredibly kind of God to create dogs. He didn't have to. If, if dogs didn't exist, you know, the universe wouldn't be thrown off course. I just think, I think God said, they'll love this. Why not? <laughs> yeah. It's, somebody uh, said that the best day, they listed all the things that would happen in the best day of your life. And one of the things they put on is, is petting your dog yeah. in the morning with some coffee or something. 
Okay, let me ask music-wise, uh, what's on your Spotify playlist or whatever you're listening, yeah. however you listen to music, what's, what's playing um, right now? Well, basically, it's two streams. One is classical. I really like classical music. I, 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 especially music of the Baroque period. George Frederick Handel is my favorite composer of all time. And the other stream would be Creedence Clearwater Revival. And so classical and credence, two C's. <laughs> There's never enough credence. That's good. That's and that's good. legit. He really does. He really does listen to CCR. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Okay. Entertainment recommendations. We're all stuck at home and. Mm. Oh, yeah. What are some good. Oh, gosh. And. The 1995 version of Sense and Sensibility with Emma Thompson and the others, Jane Austen's Sense and Sensibility. It, 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 that is my absolute favorite movie. The end is so, every time I watch that, I say, I'm not gonna cry. I'm not gonna cry. <laughs> but it's just eschatological, it's so wonderful, yeah. Okay. And, and, and the soundtrack is amazing. Good, good. I love uh, biographies, historical nonfiction. Right now I'm reading uh, Chernow's uh, Hamilton, and I just got done with his Grant biography and uh, just love history, World War II history especially. Um, but biographies are fascinating to me. Uh, what, yeah, any suggestions on well, what to read next? You know, it's interesting you'd mentioned World War II. I've just, I saw your question in advance. I pulled this up. Martin Gilbert, Churchill, A Life. Mm. Um, this is breathtaking. In, it, it literally walks you through his, not, not only his whole life, but you actually have the sense, I'm walking with Winston Churchill through World War II on a day-by-day -day basis. And the conversations he had with other leaders, the decisions he faced, and so forth. Um, the sheer workload that he faced. Mm. Um, it, wow. it, it sort of, it, it enlarged my categories for what I might be capable of accomplishing. Wow, wow. Really well, worth reading. What do you think is one thing we need to learn from the generation that there's very few of them left, the World War II generation? What's something we need to remember and learn from, from them? Well, my first answer was going to be to learn a capacity to suffer without caving and quitting, but maybe even more deeply, a capacity to believe. Mm. They were willing to suffer because they believed in my dad's generation. When World War II broke out, my dad went out and joined the United States Navy. And I, I asked him once, why did you do that? And he said, because I wanted to protect my country. 
my generation, the Vietnam generation, that thought would not have entered our minds. Um, because even more than patriotism, my dad and his generation believed in America. They believed it was worth fighting for. They believed it was worth dying for. Um, because of the principles that this nation embodied. Um, if we no longer believe that something worthy is represented in our nation, then we won't last. So it's both a capacity to suffer, but even more deeply, it's, it's a, a conviction, it's a hope, it's a persuasion that I've been located historically in something that's worth fighting for. Mm. You know, Ray, it's not you about me. Mentioning that, that is really important. Like my father also did the same thing, joined right away and was in the Battle of the Bulge and was a paratrooper. And, and uh, you know, when, when that greatest generation talked about wanting their children to have a better life than they had, it wasn't the rampant materialism. Like when people say that now, we mean just another layer of amassing riches. No, what he meant is, hey, I grew up through the depression and then World War II, out of the ashes, I want my children to be able to live at peace and security, not astronomical wealth, you know what I mean? And so I think that they, they didn't see an America that was thriving there for many of their years into adulthood. It was the hope of what could be that drove them. And so that's, I, that you put to words what uh, succinctly, what I, I remember my father talking about in that, in that sense, just, yeah, so kind of the Phoenix. You know, the for ashes. me, it was, yeah, it was my grandfather was in the war and, you know, as a grandkid, he'd, you know, we'd see his little, the German, the Luger gun that he had found and old ancient coins that, well, how did he get these? And just fascinated by that period. And, and I guess the thing, the moment for me in a movie, have you seen Saving Private Ryan, right? The, uh, and Saving Private Ryan, that moment at the end that captures the kind of the, the best picture to me of that generation is, you know, was this guy worth saving? Did he do enough? And he's at the tomb, you know, Private Ryan is at, at Tom Hanks, you know, who basically died for him to save him. And, and, you know, in the movie, they're like, he better find the cure for cancer. This guy better be worth it, you know? And now the last scene is Private Ryan at the, with, with all the tombs and, and he just starts crying and it, it pans back and you see Private Ryan's family and you realize he didn't find the cure for cancer. Was he worth saving? And it's almost like Spielberg's like, he raised a family. He was a faithful man. He, and you know, his wife in that classic World War II generation puts her, kind of pats him on the shoulder and you were a good man. You know, that kind of mm -hmm. love language yeah. of that's like, you did your duty. Mm -hmm. And even if they were maybe a little emotionally absent, they did what you, that exactly what you're talking about, the sacrifice, the sense of duty. And I think that's a message. I, I tell our young people all the time, our church is mostly millennials. And it's just like, don't be amazing. Just be faithful. Like, don't, mm -hmm. don't 
you don't have to find the cure for cancer. You don't have to start a nonprofit. You don't have to get clean water to some village. That's all great. But for your life to count, like just be faithful, just keep showing up. And, and I love how you said how they didn't quit. You know, I just, it's, it's really a vision to me that I, I love to get around that. Um, and uh, yeah, that, re that resonates with me, what you're saying about that generation. And um, well, Jeff, I would love for you to have the last word and, and uh, just close out our time. I don't know how we want to end. I'd love to, um, yeah, hear from you as we close our time. Yeah, just I think um, at every stage of life, God is so gracious to give us uh, mentors, to give us, um, you know, little breadcrumbs on the road in the form of people. You know, following Christ can be difficult because he's, he's in heaven preparing a place for us. So he drops individual people along the way to just keep us moving forward. And that great cloud of witnesses, you know, from Hebrews 11 and 12 that you talked about last week, Mark. And um, I would just want to implore everybody listening in that, I mean, Ray is accessible through a lot of his writings and um, speaking and lean in, but, but by God's grace, Ray is one of many faithful men and women out there that we need to acknowledge are further down the road than we are. And often um, we can value our, our peers and those in our immediate little cluster of humanity but to look down the road and realize there are some who have, have just walked with Christ longer and find them, find them in their writings, find them in human, like you do your Caleb group, find them in whatever possible way to just be urged on toward Christ. Uh, desperately need that in, in God's church. But uh, Mark, I think I want to throw it back at you though, because you've been closing every encounter you've had with a song, with a hymn. So, Mark, I want you to sing over us as, as we conclude. Uh, yeah, just what would God speak over us through, through song? Yeah, we've been just going outside the box and, you know, uh, we're trying to worship our way through this thing. We're trying to, we're trying to sing our way through this. And uh, we're just ending meetings with hymns. <laughs> And it's unfortunate on Zoom that we can't all sing together. Uh, otherwise, it'll just sound terrible because there will be a little delay. Uh, but but I, I, Jeff, that could be super embarrassing uh, for me, but <laughs> I don't care. Let's go for it. <laughs> Ray, do you have any hymns that you want to suggest? Well, I, in, in my opinion, the greatest hymn in the English language is When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. Oh, so Ray, did you hear the story about Charles Wesley thought that was the greatest song ever written? He said, I would trade every hymn that I've ever written to be able to say that I wrote when I survey. Wow. Isn't that hilarious? So for you to uh, to say that 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 is cool. Um, well, let's let's end with singing that together. So, 
you guys can, I don't know, you may need to mute or Zach will mute you. He's hosting our call here, but uh, let's just end our time with worshiping together. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but lost and poor contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to His blood. See from His head, His hands, His feet, Sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet? Or thorns compose so rich a crown? Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were an offering far too small, love so amazing, so Demands my soul, my life, my own. Ray, would you close us in prayer? Thank you, our dear and blessed Lord, for the privilege of sharing this time together. We ask you now to send this out to everyone for whom it is intended. And we pray that this conversation we've had will breathe life into other people as it has done for us. And let the reality of the risen Jesus be felt uh, because of our conversation. So that if, if you'll give us that gift, we'll be very happy. We thank you in your holy name. Amen. 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 Ray, thank you so much. It was a pleasure. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Great to be with you. Awesome. What a gift. Thanks, guys. All right. Well, another great week at the roundtable. So uh, hope to see you guys um, on Easter Sunday or next week. So uh, have a great week, and uh, we'll talk to you guys later. We'll see you, Ray. See Bye. You